From the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation, this is Going for Broke. Stories of people living tough times and conversations about solutions that give us hope. I'm Ray Suarez. Today we're going to talk about the exhausting red tape we go through to extract what we need from the government. Experts call it administrative burden. Lisa Ventura knows all about it. She's a case manager for clients in support of housing in New York City, but her skills at battling bureaucracy go way back. My mother's been my client since I was like eight years old, if I could be completely honest. I've been filling out paperwork since I learned how to write. Lisa's family is from the Dominican Republic. Helping her Spanish-speaking mom navigate the welfare system came naturally to her. But over time, this kind of unofficial social work can take its toll. Lisa felt that acutely during the pandemic when she got a call from her estranged father. He'd lost his job and needed help filing for unemployment. So already this was another client that I was adding to my caseload, pretty much. I didn't want to do it. It was another thing that I had to worry about. But I know that my dad has, like, this temper, which if things don't get done right away, like, he'll get angry. So I figured eventually I was going to have to do it because he was going to get angry and then we were going to argue and we were just not going to be in a good place. Many of us are doing this invisible work, filling out all these forms to get money for our kids and our parents just to survive. The applications are crazy. In a few minutes, we'll speak to an expert about promising steps to cut through this kind of bureaucracy. But first... Let's hear Lisa Ventura's story about her father. It was early in the pandemic, and he had been furloughed from his job as a mechanic at a Chevrolet dealership. And yeah, he just called and said, hey, uh, they sent me home from work. They said I need to file for unemployment. Can you go in and check that? Also, here, I'm going to send you all the paperwork. I'm going to send you pictures of all the paperwork they gave me at work. Take a look at it. And so I just took a deep breath. I took a deep breath. I was like, oh, here we go. The call could not have come at a worse time. Lockdown had just started. Lisa's work had gone remote. Her kids were home from school. Her husband was working 13-hour shifts. The pressure felt intense. I was in the middle of, like, warming up food, typing up progress notes, trying to catch up. And it was, I just, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't look at it right away. But it wasn't just pandemic stress that made Lisa balk. There was a history to contend with. Her father walked out when she was five years old. He had let her down over and over. Sometimes he's been really generous, but as a kid, all I ever wanted was the time his presence. I wanted him to be there. At graduation, I wanted to see him there. At any of my birthday parties, I wanted to see him there. And he would say he would be there. He would just flake or there was always some 
something that kept them from showing up. That was the backdrop. When her dad called, she had no desire to help him. Because when I was younger, he wasn't there. Anytime that I wanted him there, he wasn't there. He just wasn't present for me, and I didn't feel like I had to do anything for him. But Lisa knew her Dominican father couldn't fill the forms out by himself. His English wasn't fluent. Even if you sent a document to Spanish, everything needed to be done online. So you need to have a computer and you need to know how to navigate a computer. You need to have an email address. It made sense that the job would fall to Lisa. She had the skills. She'd been independent and focused ever since she was little. I've just been working hard since I was a kid. I, I got my first job when I was like 13. You know, my mom was on public assistance, so there wasn't much to go around um, for all of us. Going away to college was always a dream, so I made sure to work really hard to do that. Buying a home was always a dream, so I worked hard to do that. My mom didn't get to do any of the things that I've done or that I'm doing. And she had me at a really young age. She had me at 19, too. So she kind of gave up her youth to be a mom. So I'm very grateful for all the sacrifices that she made, the sacrifices that my grandmother made to bring my mom here and, and my great-grandmother, who was the first one to migrate from the Dominican Republic. I get to enjoy what I have now because of the sacrifices that they made. Lisa's 36 now. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and two young sons, but she still visits her old neighborhood in Manhattan. This is the Heights, as, as we call it. Um, this is where I grew up, and this is currently we're on um, 189th Street and St. Nicholas, but we're going to turn left. Um, so that we could walk towards my elementary school. So this is where we used to like come after lunch, you know, just run around and play around. Further down the street, Lisa sits on a park bench and reflects on what happened during the pandemic. It took her a few days to come around, but she eventually did file her father's unemployment form. The process of filling out all, all that paperwork was just so, annoying you know um and then i did it and and it became a weekly thing every sunday i knew i had to like file so that he wouldn't lose his benefits then it was also like you know lisa if you don't if you don't do this for him who else is gonna do this for him you're his daughter regardless of what happened in the past he's your dad you know and 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 then this is also just me learning how to forgive my dad's been a, a hardworking man all his life, so he never needed my help in that way. But this is a reality for a lot of uh, immigrant families. You know, they come from a, a different country, and in order to survive, they have to go into the welfare system. And they need people like us to be able to help them navigate because, you know, they don't have the skills for it. Lisa has always kept a journal but she began to write more seriously during the pandemic. She published an essay in Slate about her father. It was an exciting time, but then she felt guilty because she knew she'd left out part of the story. I felt really bad after the piece came out because 
it kind of put my dad in a negative light. But ironically enough, I feel that I think I needed to, to get that out because it's just, it's just a narrative that I kept playing in my head like, oh, he was never there, he was never there, he was never there, he was never there. But he's been around. He didn't completely disappear. Especially after my brother passed, I guess that changed something for him and he became a lot more present in my life. He would call more often, he would come around more often. So I think I needed to write it to realize that, hey, that's not the story anymore. He's around, he calls you, he comes, he visits, he stays at your house. Lisa's brother died by suicide when he was 16. She was in her first semester of college. The most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me was losing my brother. Deep down, my biggest fear is, you know, something like that happening to my sons or me not, not being able to see a sign or not being able to, like, give them the tools or the help or whatever it is that they may need. Because, you know, when suicide happens, you're like, but what happens? Oh, it's okay. Lisa's mother still lives in the apartment on Fort George Avenue where Lisa grew up. Um, you need to be careful with this step right here because it's different and it's like higher than all the others and everyone always trips. Oh, we have a puppy too. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Just inside the apartment, photos of Lisa's late brother Arturo hang in the entryway. So this is uh, my brother's altar that my mom has set up and she always keeps like fresh flowers and a candle and um, these are trophies that he won either for basketball or one time. Entonces, nosotros She says that um She's in the process of just letting him rest. We always, you know, talk about him. We always keep his memory alive. We always, you know, remember him, and that's how she chooses to honor him. And I guess she, she wanted him to be at peace. Yeah. Lisa's mother has sought peace with Lisa's father as well. They're friends now. And Lisa's resentment towards her dad continues to soften as she learns more about him and his early days back in the Dominican Republic. He's been working since he was like 12 years old. He's the second youngest of like 12 siblings. It seems like they had a rough upbringing. He hasn't really had much of a childhood, you know? So he doesn't know how to show up that way for me or for any of his grandchildren. I have this desire to break some sort of cycle for my children. Like, both my husband and I uh, grew up pretty much with, like, non-present fathers. So we try our very best to be as present and loving and nurturing and available for our children. Because we know what it feels like to not have that. 
So we have my husband Emmanuel, who was the gracious chef for us. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, my mom. We have the boys, Devin and Darius, and Hershey. Thanks to Lisa Ventura for sharing her story. You can read her essay, When My Father Called Me About His Unemployment, at economichardship.org. Thanks also to the Bold Voices Collaborative and an important message before we go on. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a hotline for individuals in crisis or for those looking to help someone else. To speak with a certified listener, call 1-800-273-8255. Joining me now is Pamela Hurd, professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University and co-author of the book Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means. Well, Professor, you heard Lisa Ventura's story. Uh, Like a lot of us, she had a whole lot on her plate. But here the interesting wrinkle is that having to face up to the bureaucracy to get the things you need. What is administrative burden? So administrative burden are the sort of hassles and hurdles that we encounter when we try to access basic government benefits to which, you know, you're you're eligible for. And I think as we saw in the pandemic that people really need um, to kind of get by and survive on a daily basis to have enough to eat, to be able to pay your rent. The other thing that the Lisa's story points out is that these costs aren't simply financial, whether or not you have enough money. They can be deeply psychological. The stress, the frustration, the fear of not being able to access benefits that we desperately need impose a really high cost on people. And I think that's one thing that we don't kind of acknowledge enough uh, when we look at the problems with these kind of burdens and barriers. Does the administrative burden fall equally on all Americans? I mean, I'm sure people can tell you horror stories about the DMV, horror stories about having to sign up for health insurance or insuring their car. What's different about the way that it falls on different Americans? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we can all relate to the concept, as you point out, but some Americans are just more likely to encounter it than others, and particularly people who live uh, at lower income levels, who tend to uh, be eligible for programs like Medicaid, unemployment insurance, um, food stamp benefits. Those programs in particular tend to have a lot of these burdens built into them. You know, broadly, when we look at a lot of our social welfare programs, you know, somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of people who are eligible for food stamps don't receive food stamps in large part because of these bureaucratic obstacles. We know that this is a huge issue with unemployment insurance. There are some states where you can I see upwards to 20 to 30 percent of eligible populations not receiving access to basic health insurance. It has profound implications. Uh, one striking example actually was in Tennessee. Um, they kicked nearly 200,000 children off of the Medicaid program simply because people had made paperwork errors. 200,000 children lost access to health insurance because they'd made paperwork errors. Well, one of the phrases that you hear 
constantly in debates over access to these programs is waste, fraud, and abuse. This bill called the CARES Act was passed with multiple overlapping accountability mechanisms designed to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse. Fox 11 investigates tonight, and it's the case of a Marinette man who is behind bars after he was convicted of lying to get welfare benefits. Billion dollars a year. But attorney Todd Spodek says food stamps are riddled with fraud. There's a kind of suspicion of anybody who needs the help. Could we create systems that are easier to encounter and still make sure that people who are eligible for the benefit get it and people who are ineligible don't? Yes. So, for example, in many social welfare programs, we do have people sometimes either getting benefits that they shouldn't but most of the time, it's because of a mistake. Moreover, on average, we see far more people not getting access to programs for which they're eligible than we see the reverse. There is a much more profound issue with people not getting access to benefits for which they're eligible for it than there is an issue of fraud and abuse in programs. Moreover, yeah, we absolutely can do this. So I like to point to Social Security as an example of this. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through... Social security retirement benefits, they're one of the easiest programs you can imagine in terms of navigating. They're not easy because the benefit eligibility, the earnings record, like the actual administrative burden is large. It's just that the state took responsibility for it. Government took responsibility for it. So you don't have to walk into an office with 40 years of your earnings records and sit down with a caseworker and document that to figure out whether you're eligible and what your benefit level should be. The government tracks it for you. And one of the reasons that they designed the system that way in the late 1930s was basically because they felt it would lead to less fraud. That if they did that, instead of at the time, what they had thought about was giving people stamp booklets and you get little stamps every year to document your earnings. Um, what they realized was, wow, this is like, there will be much less fraud. So yeah, absolutely. If we can more heavily with a lot of these benefit systems draw on existing data that the government has to figure out things like eligibility and document that eligibility, that will both lead to more people accessing those benefits who are supposed to, as well as less fraud. Now, in the story we just heard of Lisa Ventura, her father was having trouble because of his lack of English language proficiency. And he was lucky. He had a daughter who knows how to navigate the system, which not everybody does. But is the fix just as simple as translating materials into other languages? Or is it more than that? It's typically more than that. So especially for a program like unemployment insurance, that was a very uh, special situation in the sense that his daughter, right, had this enormous experience providing access to a lot of different programs in the context of her job, right? Like this was her job, literally, to help people figure out how to navigate bureaucratic systems. Um, and she even talked about, right, like every week she had to be in there 
documenting different things so that he could keep receiving his unemployment insurance. So unfortunately, it's normally not enough to do things like just translate from Spanish to English, because the requirements, the generic requirements are really much broader than that. There's sort of two ways to think about solutions. One, we start asking government to just draw on the data it already has to do this rather than asking people to provide it. So there's ways in which we can simplify administrative processes. The other way is you figure out ways to provide more people with hands-on help to navigate complicated systems. Does some of this problem stem from a sort of core belief, um, if you will, a, a given at the beginning of the problem that assumes that people lie? that we're entering into this negotiation, that we enter into this encounter already trying to sniff out who's lying to us, uh, catch the people who are trying to do something dishonest, rather than find the people who need help. Yeah, I mean, sort of what I said earlier about who we think of as deserving and undeserving, right? Like these kinds of barriers really do tend to be more common in programs targeted at poor Americans. Um, And we just have a long history of thinking that people are poor because it's their fault, because if they've done something wrong. I'm afraid that several members of Congress have suggested some proposals that, while claiming to require work-related activities, would make staying on welfare more attractive. Their misguided compassion would only bring more people into the welfare system encourage them to stay on the welfare rolls longer, and discourage work. For those kinds of reasons, we also tend to assume that folks are going to be more likely to try to cheat themselves into benefits. Now, to be clear, there's very little evidence that that's actually true. But as you're asking, I absolutely do think those are the attitudes that help shape um, why we have more burdens in some programs than in others. Is that kind of conception of our fellow citizens sort of leeching into other parts of our society. I I wonder if I'm hearing that same kind of idea in all the new burdens to voting, for instance, or registering to vote, or proving you're you when you show up at the polls. Well, some of it is politics, (laughs) right? So one of the things about using burdens is that it can be a political tool, right? So it's not that actually, I mean, we know people aren't, for example, committing fraud when they try to vote. It's incredibly rare. And I think we have a lot of evidence that the reason that we're putting a lot of burdens in place to prevent people from voting are political in origin. Is there anything when you look at this landscape that gives you hope? Anything that we've learned in recent years that that we might be able to incorporate into the design of how people interact with government? Yeah, actually there is. I mean, there's a ton of attention among those of us who study social welfare policies and policies more broadly that we have to address these issues, that we have to come up with with better design, better implementation, better administration. So there have been a lot of actually changes to programs over the last five years that have improved this. Within the SNAP program, for example, the food stamp program, they've made a lot of changes that have made the program a lot more accessible. And more generally, what I would say is that one of the things that happened with the pandemic is that many people who had not been exposed to this kind of burden were exposed to it. 
So we had all kinds of people all at once applying for emergency assistance, emergency unemployment. And they saw what this was like in practice. It's one thing to sort of stand back and say, well, sure, it seems a little hard. It's another thing to actually encounter those burdens yourself. But at this point, we have to cross our fingers and hope that those people who saw just how hard it was have a change of heart and uh, push on, uh, on their end as voters, as people who have influence, to actually get a change in policy rather than saying, whew, glad that's over. <laughs> glad I can go back to work and not have to do this anymore and let the people who are immersed in that world remain there. Yeah, no, that's 100% right. Um, and, and the politics of all this are, are always quite complicated. I, I would just say, though, from my perspective, as someone who's been watching this kind of for the last 20 years, there just is a lot more attention to this in policy circles around the design of the child tax credit. There was a lot of discussion about how do we make this easier for people to access it. I, I do genuinely feel like there has been just a lot of attention to it. The Biden administration um, has actually issued directives around reducing administrative burden in federal programs that came out of the Office of Management and Budget. So it's actually a priority of the Biden administration. So there's a lot that you can do. One of the nice things about administrative burden is it doesn't necessarily require policy change. Like it doesn't necessarily require congressional action. The executive branch um, at the federal level and even at the state level, state executive branches can do a ton to reduce burden. Professor, thanks a lot for taking the time to explain this all to us. Well, thank you for having me. Pamela Hurd is co-author of the book, Administrative Burden, and a professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Going for Broke comes to you from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation. Our producer is Jeb Sharp. Mixing and sound design by Tina Toby Mack. Our executive producers are Alyssa Quart and David Wallace. Frank Reynolds is multimedia editor at The Nation. The Nation's editor is D.D. Guttenplan. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit thenation.com slash podcasts to learn more. Sign up for EHRP's newsletter at economichardship.org.